One of the finest hymns ever sung, written, sang. I don't know what the, my mom corrects me on that every time I say it. I don't know what's right now. Sang or sung, I love it. Golly, goosebumps. That was rich. Thankful, thankful for that. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, just before we pray about how we're going to spend these next few minutes, Lord, I want to pray. For, we want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I want to pray for Matt Beasley and his family. Lord, I pray that you will bless Matt Beasley. Lord, I pray that he is enjoying you right now. God, Lord, just fill him with the Holy Spirit. Use him to be a herald of this scandal of Christ crucified and risen, of the birth that we celebrate this time of year. Lord, I pray that you will bless Ridgecrest Baptist Church, that you will fill their space with um, new families, new believers, folks that are not walking with the people, Lord. I pray that they'll have the wonderful problems of uh, seating and parking and uh, children, children's uh, space, Lord. I uh, just want to pray, too, for their project uh, as they're finishing up their building, Lord. I just pray that you would speed that along. I know they are eager to get back in that building. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you are giving them a nice, um, needed uh, dose of their identity as the church, the people of God, that's not a building, but a people. Lord, we uh, just entrust that church to you. I entrust Matt and his family to you. Thankful for their friendship and their partnership in this community. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we will truly enjoy you. I'm thankful for this good, good medicine. You're a good father. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm going to read excerpts from this genealogy. We were in the genealogy last week, and we'll be sort of honing in on a couple of things in this genealogy this week and then week after next. I'm not quite done with this uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'll read excerpts and just kind of jump around. I'll identify for you where I'm going. The book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. That's the break in the first 14 generations. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Jump down to verse 11. This is the end of the second group of 14 generations. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. In verse 12, this is the beginning of the last 14 generations. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. And down to verse 16 and 17. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, last week we identified uh, really a couple of important figures in this story. Obviously, there's a lot of names. I skipped over all those names because this is going to be a hearty sermon. 
I don't mean lengthwise necessarily. I mean just attention-wise. I have five different passages that I'm going to take you to this morning, and we're going to read some sizable chunks of passage, passage for good reason. I don't do that unless I really uh, have a really good reason, and this morning there's a really, really good reason. So I, I jumped over a bunch of names in here to sort of bring you to uh, kind of the breakdown of 14, 14, and 14. It's something that David, or excuse me, that Matthew makes the point here, and he pointed out two really important figures in this genealogy. One is a man named David, and the other is a man named Abraham. This morning, we're just going to spend our time considering the role of David and how he plays out in this story of Christ. Let's start, first of all, with this 14, 14, 14. I pointed this out last week. It's one of the weirdest things that I've ever seen. I, it's, just, it's just weird. We just have to trust that there's weird stuff that we can't really figure out. This thing called gematria, this ancient Hebrew practice of assigning a, a number to a letter. What's going on here, apparently, is that Matthew has assigned the numbers 4 for D in David, 6 for the V in David, and then 4 again to the last D in David, to, to total the number 14. And he's in some way with this 14, 14, 14, he's calling to attention this man and his role in this story of Christ, this guy, King David. He is a very important figure in this genealogy. He's also embedded squarely in the chiasmus I pointed out to you last week. A chiasmus, just to kind of give you a, it's, it doesn't have to be real academic, it's kind of cool. It's a, a literary technique to bring some balance to uh, literature. It's an ancient technique where they want to call to attention something. And the chiasmus, you can kind of think of it like a stairway that goes up and then a stairway that goes down on the other side. And this stairway on this side begins with Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And then David and then Abraham. And then in verse 17, that's in verse 1. And verse 17 is the other side, the bookend, the other stairwell that begins with Abraham and then David and then the Christ. And right in the middle of that chiasmus is a man named David. David is also the guy that bridges the gap between the first 14 generations and the second 14 generations. Jesse, right there in verse 6, Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. That's where the second generation, or the second group of 14s, begins with Solomon. Okay, He bridges that gap from the first 14 to the second 14. He's also the only person in this genealogy, apart from Jesus, that has a title. Okay, there's Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, even though those are synonymous, Christ and Messiah. But there's also David the king. He's the only one that's identified as the king. But there are 15, I counted, 15 kings in this list. This guy's like uber important to Matthew in this genealogy. And what's kind of interesting, what's kind of cool is that this guy, Matthew, ends up being really, really important in the rest of the book. Okay, so I have kind of a little survey for you. Uh, I'll just mention the passage for you. And if you're like really like sword drill guy or gal, you can just turn there if you're like really visual and you have to see it. But I would encourage you maybe in these survey sections, I have two little surveys to do this morning that I'm just going to move expeditiously through, but it's for a good purpose. Okay, here's a survey. Here's what Matthew says to, about this son of David is the term that he uses, that he used in chapter 1, verse 1. He referring to Christ as the son of David. Later on, he shows up in the rest of the book, that term. Chapter 1, verse 20, the angel appears to Joseph and tells him, ah, you're going to have a son. Your wife, your wife-to-be is with child by the Holy Spirit. 
And he refers to him as Joseph, son of David. He doesn't say the son of David, but he refers to him as a, apparently, son of David. Chapter 9, verse 27. Some blind guys are calling out to Jesus, the son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Which I think is really cool that even blind guys can see that he's the son of David. Okay. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 23. The crowds are asking this question, can this be the son of David? He's just healed a guy that was demon-possessed, that was blind and mute. Okay? And the crowds are going, can this be the son of David? This pregnant question right in the middle of the book of Matthew? It's kind of like Matthew wants to ask and answer that question in the book. Can this Jesus be the son of David? Chapter 15, verse 22, there's a Gentile woman that has a demon-oppressed daughter. And a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, calls out to Jesus as the son of David. So even a Gentile can see that he's the son of David. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, two more blind guys. As if the first two blind guys aren't enough. Two more blind guys call out to Jesus as he's passing by and refer to him. They say, save us, heal us, son of David. And the crowd rebukes him. Shut up, blind guys. And they call out louder. Son of God, or son of David, heal us. Apparently, at least four blind guys can see that he's the son of David. Chapters 21 and 22, the beginning of Passion Week. As he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, The crowds are shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, son of David. The adults are saying that at chapter 20. And in chapter 21, it even tells us that even the children are calling out. And they're referring to him as the definite article, son of David. Man, David has an important role in this story, apparently. Matthew's numbers tell us he's important with this gematria thing. His literary structure with a chiasmus tells us he's important. The special words that he uses only for him as King David tell us he's really important. An angel speaking with Joseph about the news of his child that's coming tells us it's important, identifying him as a son of David. Blind guys can see it. A Gentile woman knows it, and streets full of adults and children in ancient Jerusalem know that David is important as they watch the Christ ride into Jerusalem. All of these, all of these people that we've identified recognize apparently a very important connection, including Matthew, between King David and Jesus the Messiah. My, uh, I have a kind of a hope for this sermon this morning. My hope and prayer this morning is that by the end of the morning, we're going to join the angels, at least the angel of the Lord that gave uh, Joseph a heads up, that we'll join the kids that shouted, Hosanna, son of God, that we'll join the blind guys in seeing and the Gentile woman in recognizing and the crowds in understanding why Jesus as the definite article, son of David, is so important. Okay, so let's consider what's the big deal with this guy. Now, I'm going to identify five passages for you that you can kind of have ready. Okay, they're kind of, uh, they're actually all in the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to make sense of this gospel that we're in through the lens of this story that's thousands of years old. So the first reference, and you can go ahead and turn there, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
2 Samuel chapter 7. Y'all can turn there. I like to hear some pages. Make this noise. The second uh, verse that I'm going to have us go to is in 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 11 after that. And then 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 after that. And then lastly, Psalm 89. I told you we weren't going to be playing this morning, and we're not playing. There's no room for playing on the second Sunday of Advent. We're about to get serious and get neck neck deep in this story and try and figure out what in the world is up with the son of David. Okay, here's some background. Here's the the second survey to lead up to this important passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Who is this David guy? Things weren't going very well with Saul. Okay, Samuel was sort of like the last judge slash prophet. Okay, Samuel has anointed Saul. Saul's reign is not going well. Saul is, is not trusting the Lord like he should. And God's tell, and Samuel's grieved about it. God tells Samuel, Samuel, quit grieving over Saul. Fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, i.e. the guy that lives in the city of David in Bethlehem. So he goes there and he says, go there for I'm providing a king for myself among his sons. So Samuel goes to Jesse and says, okay, I need to see all your sons. So he parades out his sons one at a time. I guess he starts with the tallest. Eliab, I think is his name. He's like, wow, he's a handsome lad. Surely this must be him. No, it's not him. Okay, next, next, next. They go through all the sons and Samuel's like, no, it's not it. It's not it. It's not it it either. And he like turns to Jesse and Jesse's, is this it? And Jesse's, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. He's like, oh yeah, there's that youngest one of mine, the ruddy one that's out in the field tending sheep. You want me to get him? He said, yeah, get him. And it ended up being him, this shepherd boy, David, that's the king that's anointed that we're talking about. So at least right off the bat, we can identify that he's at least nearly forgotten. He's a nearly forgotten youngest son, the least likely to be king in his father's eyes. Okay? We know, too, that he's a faithful and brave shepherd. When he showed up to take down the giant, you know, he's making his case with Saul. He's making his case with his brothers. He's like, man, I can take down this giant. Man, whenever something threatens my sheep, do you know that I don't tend to them and do business with them? Like a lion or a bear? I don't know what kind of lions or bears were in around Bethlehem at this time, but apparently there were. I don't know that there are now, but there were then. And maybe David killed them all because he took them by the scruff of the neck is what he says. He took them by their beard. I mean, that's, that's manly. Like he's a boy. He's like a boy taking a bear and a lion by the beard saying, you don't mess with my sheep. Man, I like the idea of Jesus being identified as the son of David in that term. I like the thought of that kind of bravery in that kind of shepherding. So we know that about David so far. We know that he's the nearly forgotten youngest son, the least likely to be king in his father's eyes. He's a faithful and brave shepherd. We know, too, that he's a warrior. I mean, we know it by the story with the giant. Man, he took down the giant and got the job done with a slingshot, no less. And we know, too, that as he grew up, he became a man that carried a sword with his team, his mighty men. That Man, there needs to be a great movie done about the mighty man. These guys, you read about their stories and their exploits, and these guys were deadly, and David led them. David proved to be deadly in addition to these other things that we've considered so far. 
He was a good son to Jesse. He did what his father asked him. He was an attentive brother, tending to his brothers on the battlefield. He was a faithful servant to Saul, even a guy that wasn't worth following a lot of the time. And he was a good friend to Saul's son named Jonathan. Man, David is a really good guy. He's easy to like, isn't he? He's a really good king, too. You can add to all the, this list so far. He's a really good king, and he was identified as a man after God's own heart. It's easy so far to see why Jesus would be called the son of David, right? Because David's so likable. Man, who wouldn't like David? Okay, so let's see what God does in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is probably the most important passage of the morning, apart from Matthew chapter 1, home base. Okay, listen to what goes down. I'm going to read it. Uh, at the beginning, I'm going to skip a section, and I'll tell you where I'm picking up again, just to save some listening currency. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the king, we're speaking to David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, he and the mighty men, and he and his armies had been getting it done. All right, it's a little time of peace now. So the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God... That's the Ark of the Covenant, dwells in a tent. And Nathan said, that sounds like a great idea. I see where you're going with this, David. Man, you ought to take that idea and run with it. He says, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, hold up. I got a little different plan, Nathan. You should have consulted me first. I wonder if there was some interchange there. You should have consulted me first before you just shot from the cuff like that. Go tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house before now. I don't need your house, David. Jump down to verse 8. Now, therefore, here's what, you want to, here's what I want you to go say to David, Nathan. Thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Remember when your dad almost forgot about you? Like he really did forget about you. From, the following the, or from following the sheep, or tending to the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord's going to make you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, it's a key word, forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, there's that key word, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, David, when you're dead and gone, God's going to raise up for you one of your offspring to build a house for my name. And I will establish your throne for how long? What a great word. We heard it three times. We heard it once in in, in verse 13. We heard it twice in verse 16. Forever. I love that word. It's a great word. Your offspring will build a house for my name, and your offspring will reign forever. Okay, so at this point, this is a true Cinderella story, isn't it? I mean, this is a Cinderella story. I, I don't know why, every time I say that phrase, every time I, even when I wrote in my notes, I was thinking about Bill Murray and, the, and Caddyshack. Cinderella story, unknown, comes out of nowhere. That's what I'm thinking about David. This guy came out of nowhere. This is truly a Cinderella story. The ruddy, forgotten, shepherd boy made king. Wow, who doesn't like this story? Who wouldn't like this story? He's loved by God with forever promises. Not just temporary ones, but like forever promises. And it's easy to see why the son of David reference would apply, right? Carpenter's son, Cinderella story out of nowhere, has a crowd and a following, and the, sh- the, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, son of David, son of David, save us. Man, it's easy to like this story so far. And you know, I was thinking we could just kind of stop right here. The sermon would be a lot shorter. Like everybody in nursery would think, man, I got the best week to sign up. How did that happen? Those of y'all that work in nursery, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you know when I have a long sermon, you're over there like, oh, man. I mean, I love Jesus and all, but he got to finish. We could stop right here, man. It would be kind of cool. We, we'd, we'd beat everybody to lunch at all the restaurants. Man, we could, we could just enjoy Jesus as the son of David or, or Solomon as the son of David that built a house. Okay, we'd be like, oh, man, that's cool. That promise it was made. Solomon built a, quite, a, quite a temple, and it was amazing. And then Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the forever version of that. Man, we could leave and really enjoy all that. And we could consider this news of Jesus really as just kind of news. News of a really likable Jesus the son of a very likable king. I was thinking this might be kind of the Hallmark version. It might be like a Hallmark version of a sermon. Okay, where we leave and everybody's happy. Everybody's a few tears shed because it's so sweet how it all turned out. I thought too, okay, I've done this a couple times over the years and it's never bitten me. I hope it doesn't bite me this time. Um, Talking about Christian movies. Okay, I'm not talking about all Christian movies, but I'm gonna talk about one. Okay, it's called the name of it, and some of y'all, it might be your favorite movie. I think maybe I made whoever, this might be their favorite movie. They might have gotten mad and left already, so maybe we're good. Facing the Giants is the name of it. Okay, Facing the Giants. All right, some of y'all have seen this movie. If you haven't, man, go see like Mission Impossible or something. Go see something else. (laughs) Mission Impossible is really good. Go, Go see a good movie. Facing the Giants, man, what a terrible movie. Some of y'all like that movie, I can tell, because you're like, oh, don't talk about my movie now. Talk about my favorite movie. It's like in your Facebook story. You know, what's your favorite movie? Facing the Giants. Everybody's going to be erasing that after. You're doing it right now. I can see you on your phone looking down. 
Okay, facing the Giants. It's like a coach. Coach and his wife moved to this town. He's going to go coach a football team. And uh, he, he shows up. His team is like losing team, man. They're terrible. Like his truck won't run. Like some of y'all have seen the story. You know what I'm talking about. Like his truck was terrible. The thing was just in bad shape. He lived in a house that was like, uh, like something was dead underneath the kitchen floor. Like it was smelling, stinking up the whole house. And on top of that, his wife couldn't get pregnant, or he and his wife couldn't get pregnant. Okay, man, it's, it's like really a bummer so far. I mean, it's crazy. This guy is just like Job or something, you know. Well, he has this night where he's like, he's really convicted. He's like, I'm just going to go pray. So he goes out in the grove behind his house, and he prays. He spends the whole night praying. And then the next thing he knows, like after one night of praying, his team never loses another game. Somebody gives him a brand new Ford pickup, like a Lariat or something. I don't know all the Ford models, but it was the nice one. Like, uh, that looks nice, brand new. His team is winning all their games. Somebody got under the house and figured out what was dead under there. I don't know who did it. I forgot that part of the story. I didn't pay attention a whole lot. His wife, who before couldn't even get pregnant, now is like having babies like every three or four months. Like, she doesn't have a normal gestation period anymore. Like, she just like. <laughs> man, if we finish this story right here in this sermon, it'd be a lot like that, that movie. Like, man, apparently if you love God, everything just goes awesome. <laughs> wow, what a terrible movie. <laughs> and I think it'd be a terrible sermon if we stopped right now. It'd be quaint. But we would miss the point. Solomon built a house that David wanted, and David's throne is established forever in Christ. That'd be nice, but we would leave out why the story of Jesus is more than news. We would leave out why it's really good news. Why it's like a scandal that ought to change people's lives, that ought to result in people like putting their hand to the plow and never looking back. I think we would miss too, we would leave out the key wrinkle of what happens when man, men, any man is involved in a conditional covenant. How that's going to go. All right. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. It's the second place I told you I wanted to get, want you to go. We'd be leaving out the key wrinkle of what happens when man is involved in a conditional covenant. Okay, <laughs> let's see if we can unpack this. We're not even going to talk about Bathsheba. Okay, we're just going to skip the whole Bathsheba thing. Remember I told you the wrinkle? We could go make a beeline to that right off the bat, right? <laughs> How this covenant's going, the conditional part of it. But let's just go ahead and skip Bathsheba and go to Bathsheba's son, to Solomon. Okay, here David is sort of in his final days. Chapter 2 of 1 Kings, beginning in verse 1. When David's, time to, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show thyself a man. Man, I remember one of those. That's one of the earliest verses I learned. I love that. I learned in King James, that's why it's thyself. What a great 
passage. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes and his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses. Mm. Now here's a word that's a little problematic. That. It's giving a hint that we're talking about something sort of conditional here. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if. It's the beginning of an if-then statement. The then's not in there. It's implied. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, here's the implied then, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Mm. Man, that's heavy. David's final days turns to Solomon. Solomon must have heard it like it hit him. Like, ooh, that's heavy. Solomon, man, things are looking really good for Solomon right out of the chute. He, he, he asks for wisdom. He's granted a request. Give me wisdom, bro. He's wise just even in asking for it. I'm like, he didn't have to, have to ask for it. But he's given this amazing, amazing wisdom. He built a beautiful temple for the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, things are really going well. People travel far and wide to see and experience the wisdom of Solomon and the splendor of Israel. And man, we can just kind of turn the page. Just look, at, look, at me, or look with me at the pages as we turn over to chapter 11. But look as we go. Turn the page over to chapter 3. Solomon prays for wisdom. Chapter 6, Solomon builds the temple. Chapter 8, the ark is brought into the temple. Yeah, mm, it's been in a tent. Now it's in a proper house. Solomon blesses the Lord. Solomon has a prayer of dedication that is phenomenal. We spent like a whole series of Sundays on this prayer of dedication. Beautiful, beautiful. Things are really going smashingly for Solomon. And then we get over to chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now King Solomon, man, I'm, I'm not inserting a word into God's word, but I'm thinking, unfortunately. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. I referred to him as Hugh Hefner last week. This is kind of why. Like an ancient Hugh Hefner. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Wow. Wow. Right? John Adele, like, you looking at me, you know what I'm talking about. 700? <laughs> Golly. Wow. He's about to be wise. He'd have to have some wisdom in how to figure out how to t- handle that. 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives, there, here it comes, turned away his heart. Uh oh. We had a conditional covenant. We had a certain promise. Remember the words? Forever, forever, forever. But we had a conditional covenant, conditional 
terms here that sounds like his heart's been turned away. Look at verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant with, and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I'm going to do it in your son's days. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. That's Rehoboam he's speaking of. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe, one wee tribe, the tribe of Judah, to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Man, Solomon did not keep God's covenant with David. He failed to meet the conditions. And as promised, under Solomon's son, the kingdom is split in two. If you've ever read the, the, the book of First and Second Kings, where you see these two kings, there's one in Israel, that's the north, and there's one in the south, that's Judah. The split happened because of Solomon's sin. And it happened under his son, Rehoboam. And it's a tragic split, a tragic part of the story where the kingdom is split in two. And David's throne is reduced to ruling over one single tribe, the tribe of Judah. Man, okay, so the wrinkle. We're dealing with the wrinkle. I wish I could say that Solomon was an outlier. I mean, I wish I could say that Solomon was the only one that like his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons did a whole lot better job or did something different than he did. But man, it's a tragic story from that point forward. What followed after Solomon was a line of messy kings in two kingdoms. As if it's not enough seeing how messy human kingdoms can be and how messy human kings can be. You get it times two with Israel in the north and Judah even in the, in the south. A line of messy terrible kings it's the opposite of facing the giants okay the team's in the team isn't winning the team has now been split up there's one player and there's the rest of them and the coach is there's two coaches man this thing has turned into a mess it's the opposite of face the giants facing the giants even the good kings had problems some of their stories were so dark you could actually even hardly speak their names like Manasseh we considered Manasseh last week who sacrificed his own son on the altar as an offering on, on a altar I don't know that it was the altar but it was on a altar an altar man dark dark I saved the most I saved the the darkest for this week his name is Jeconiah Okay, here's the next passage, just briefly. Turn there. 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. I'm just going to just end with the sort, not in the sermon, but in this little section of developing this story of these kings and how things are going with the conditional part of the covenant with this guy named Jeconiah. Chapter 24 of 2 Kings, the heading in my Bible says Jehoachin. Okay, that's AKA Jeconiah. Same guy. Now, why he's called different names, I don't know, but he is. He's the same guy we're talking about here. Okay, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. 
Okay, there's not a lot of data there. We don't have a lot. Of, we had a whole lot more data on Manasseh. So why exactly would this guy's story be so dark? Turn over a page. Turn over a page. The, the last page of 2 Kings in my Bible. Okay, for a Jew who's reading the Torah and the Word, this is going to be like the end of the story. This is going to be the, the, like the period at the end of the story where they're waiting for something to happen. Be like the end of, of their Hebrew Bible. Okay, I want you to see what goes down with this guy named Jeconiah slash a.k.a. Jehoiachin. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month. Okay, so he's 55 years old now. Okay, fast forward 38 years. 37, excuse me, 37th year of the exile. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin slash Jeconiah. Hey, Jeconiah is mentioned in the genealogy. Jeconiah is the guy that bridges the gap between the second group of 14 and the third group of 14. This is the guy we're talking about. Okay, this guy's so vile in what I'm about to show you. Matthew didn't even mention his name as the transition. He names him, but then he replaces him with the movement to Babylon, the deportation to Babylon. It's an extreme slight. Like Matthew couldn't even look at this guy. Now, he predated him by 500 years. I'm talking figuratively. He couldn't even look at this guy. Jeremiah had some stuff to say about this guy that will make your skin crawl. This guy was bad news. Here he is in Babylon. He spent 38 years in Babylon. The king, evil Merodach, frees him graciously from prison. And look at what happens. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Okay, watch what happens next. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance, was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Okay, that may not sound really vile to you. I want us to help you kind of visualize what actually just happened. It's really hard for us because we don't have kings. We don't have people that we identify with as this is my king and you're going to bat for us. And kings, in a lot of cases, like David, for example, was, a, was also a warrior leading his troops into battle. We don't have that sort of connection with a president, for example. Elected, you know, every four years, we get a new one. Okay, this guy, I want you to consider what it would be like. This guy might give us a little bit of a taste. What it, what it might be like is if Russia invaded the U.S. Okay, we can kind of imagine that. It's hard to imagine. We cannot kind of imagine. Russia invades the U.S. And they defeat us. And they take away two-thirds of us. I don't know, half of us. And they take us all back to Russia. And we become slaves, okay? Just imagine you're a slave in Boris's house. You're vacuuming, okay? You're vacuuming the house for the Russian guy, Boris, slave, okay? He's got his TV on. Okay, you've been over there like 38 years. You know, you're, you're like old slave, okay? 
You got that thing going, shark, best vacuum around. You got, you got a shark going, and the TV's on. And look, guess what comes on the TV? A little video clip of Donald Trump, okay, sitting around with uh, um, Vladimir Putin at, at a Russian bathhouse, wearing a satin robe, smoking stogies, and drinking vodka. You're like, Donald, what are you doing? We're still here. You look really comfortable in Russia, homeboy. You're our president. You're supposed to get us out of here. We're doomed. <laughs> look at what our president's doing. He's at home in Babylon. Jack and I are sitting around eating grapes. Somebody's fanning him with palm fronds. <sighs> He's got a nice little robe on, feet kicked up. Babylonian slaves, maybe a Jew. Rubbing his feet. Man, this guy's not showing thyself a man. He's not going to bat for his people. He's at home in Babylon. <laughs> man, that's dark. Imagine being a slave in Babylon at this moment where you see that on the TV as you're vacuuming. We're done. We're ruined. We're never going home. Man, this is really Bad news. Jeconiah is a vile finish to the story of the kings. What happens after this is 500 years of darkness. As if it wasn't dark already. 500 years of darkness. The last passage I want you to look at this morning is in Psalm 89. Y'all done some good work this morning. I know this hadn't been easy. But there's some goods for you in what you're about to see, I think. Psalm 89. It's a maskal. Uh, I read a long time ago, and I, I can't say this for sure because a lot of this ancient language, uh, what it means, some of this ancient language has been lost over time. But what I read years ago is that a maskal is a teaching psalm. It's a maskal of Ethan the Ezraite. We don't know when Ethan the Ezraite was around, but believed to be, scholars believe to be, this guy was around like uh, in the time after, during and after Solomon. Like he had a front row seat to what happened to the kingdom when it was split under Rehoboam. He would have been, as a contemporary of Solomon, familiar with the promise that was made to David. Forever, forever, forever. But here's the conditions. Now, he would have been familiar with that and also at the same time familiar with a front row seat to the heartbreak of a broken kingdom. Listen to what he says in Psalm. And I'm going to jump around in Psalm 89. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read some excerpts, really important excerpts. And I, I'm going to ask you right now, work at feeling what you hear in this psalm. I know I've drawn on a lot of listening currency this morning. It's for really good reason. I'm asking you to dig deep and really work at listening and feeling almost this psalm. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Enjoy this joy that you hear at the beginning. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. 
forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. He's writing a psalm about David's covenant. That's 2 Samuel 7 passage. I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Skip down to verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to the one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I've found David my servant with my holy oil. I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and on his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring certainty forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. But here's the conditions. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant, certainty, or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. These next two words, I think about, they make me think about my favorite two words in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Some of y'all may know these two words. They're my favorite, but God. Ah, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. What great news. This is like the opposite of a but, not, but God. This is a but now. This is moving the opposite direction of a but God. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. This is how God, this God's disposition toward Israel and Judah. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust You have breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. This is the story of the Babylonian exile. It hadn't even happened yet. Ezra thinks it was bad when the kingdom split. He hadn't even seen what's going to go down a few few hundred years later. When they're ripped from their homes and invaded by Babylon. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword. He's not winning anymore. He's not winning any games. You've not made him stand in the battle. You've made his splendor to cease and have cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Listen to this this really heartbreaking cry. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
How long will your wrath burn like fire? In verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness, by your faithfulness, you swore to David? God, where did you go? Man, this thing was certain. But where did you go? This psalm is a little song version of the terrible heartbreak of something that's so certain, promised by God, forever, 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 but yet involving conditional movement with guys like Solomon and Rehoboam and Ahaz and Manasseh and Jeconiah and every other son that they could have had. David could have had a million sons and grandsons, and this would have been the story over and over and over again, a conditional heartbreak combined somehow with a certain promise. Ezra's going, how's it going to work? I know you're true. I know you didn't lie to David. But how's it going to work? The king has been ripped from Rehoboam. He's got one tribe now. And now we're two tribes, north and south. And what he doesn't know later, they're going to be ripped from their homes and dragged to Assyria and Babylon. How long, O Lord? About 500 years or so. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? No. Just till about the fullness of time. Just till about the fullness of time when God sends his son born of a woman in Bethlehem. Galatians 4.4. That long. How long? That long. Precisely that long. That's how long he's going to hide his face with this crazy conundrum of a certain promise with the heartbreak of human kings trying to fulfill the promises, trying to fulfill the covenant. How long? Ah, about 500 years. And man, it's going to be a dark 500 years. So dark. Lord, we spent all night long praying in the grove, and our team is still losing. In fact, we have no team anymore. I have no truck. I have no wife. I have no home. I've been ripped from my home, in fact. Pitch, darkness, and gloom leading right up to leading right up to a dark and starry starry night right outside Bethlehem where the heavenly host burst in this beautiful bright light shines into that dark night that's how long the heavenly host burst into this dark night over the skies in the skies over some shepherds bringing good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day. How long? Till tonight. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. The answer to the conundrum, the solution to how something certain can still happen when frail, feeble kings are involved. He's how. Because he ain't frail. And he ain't feeble. And he doesn't disappoint. David, you could have a million sons. But it's not until this son of David, the son of David, for the covenant will be fulfilled. The only way. The only way. (laughs) God made a covenant that was conditional yet certain. And the only way for that to play out is he himself must intervene. 
Jesus is that intervention. He is himself the answer. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, is that intervention. He is how a conditional covenant can still be certain. Man, I know I picked on a movie today, and I know that some folks hold that dear, but I think that that movie might be a reflection of how we think about Christianity. I want you to understand this. Matthew's good news is not a winning football team. Matthew's good news is not a fixed truck or even a new truck. Matthew's good news is not a house that doesn't stink. Matthew's good news is not having a baby if you couldn't have a baby. Is that good news? Absolutely. But that's not the good news that Matthew's preaching here in this gospel. It's not the good news that I'm bringing this morning either. Matthew's good news is that he's making an important statement about this Jesus. This Jesus, the Messiah. This Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to David of a forever king. He is God's intervention. He is building a house for his name. And guess where it is? You're it. (laughs) It's called the church. The temple's been destroyed. He's building a house for his name, and we're it. And he's reigning forever. He's reigning and seating and reigning ruling right now at the right hand of the Father, placing all things in subjection under his feet. He's got his feet kicked up. Man, I love that. Matthew 4, 16, Matthew says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Man, it was dark indeed, and he is the bright answer to their darkness. Let's pray. God, what an unbelievable story. What a horrific uh, lot man makes of things, even the best of kings. Lord, what an unbelievable story that you sent the king of kings 2,000 years ago as your intervention. I'm thankful that you made a certain and sure forever promise to David, and I'm thankful that you and the person of Jesus Christ met the conditions that he met the conditions for us. Lord, I'm thankful that by our union with him, that we're saved with him. God, what great news. That is a scandal. We are thankful, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have our supper in a minute, but I want you to think about something before we distribute these elements. Every sermon that I preach, I ask the question, what's the point? And I usually deal with that in a section of the sermon called application. If you notice, I didn't have an application for you. And here's why. Because I think we can become application junkies. There's a name for somebody that's sort of an application junkie. That's thinking about what's the point, what's the point, what's the point. There's a name for that person. And it's not condemning. It's just a reality. It's a pragmatist. Does this work? If it doesn't work, I'm done. I'm out. That'd be like standing at the base of Michelangelo's David and going, what's the point, man? What's the point in all this? If you're there in Florence standing at the base of Michelangelo's, like people are whispering as they walk around, if they're talking at all. 
There's no pictures. You can't, you can't take any pictures in there. It's like a place of worship. You don't stand in, some, in front of something gorgeous and say, what's the point? We're not pragmatists. We're worshipers. We stood in front of something gorgeous this morning. Let's just enjoy the beauty of it. Let's enjoy the subject of it, the person of Jesus Christ. Let's enjoy the author behind it, a good father. My hope in this morning in an applicationless sermon is that we could somehow create and equip blind guys who grope after and call out to the son of David. Healed or not. My hope in an applicationless sermon might be that um, Gentile women with crazy kids might call out to the son of David, save us. My hope would be that crowds would call to him, children would call to him, Hosanna, son of David, and that would just be enough for this morning. But it would be really good, more than enough. Like it might be something that actually conditions us to really enjoy him in a way right now that maybe we haven't, or maybe haven't in a long time. I love the thought of holiday celebrants shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Man, that's my hope and prayer this morning. As we deliver the supper and distribute the elements here in a moment, I want to encourage you to just enjoy this simple but satisfying meal of the broken body and blood of Jesus. Not asking, how does it work? What's the point? Just enjoying the beauty of God's intervention in the person of Christ.